At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am, as ever, your co-host with the face for radio and the voice for logging, Mark Bigney. And with me is the show, the eye candy, the face, the pecs, the voice, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hey, baby. Oh, it makes me weak in the knees when you say that. Now, we always say this every week, but we're going to mix things up this week by virtue of the fact that I am actually going to be returning home. Yes, the four-letter word in my existence that I haven't been to in 13 months. I'm actually going to be returning home. I get to be reminded that I have such things as, you know, a couch, cutlery, all the things that I've missed. As a consequence, however, I have not been able to do my due diligence, and for this I apologize. So there will be no topic or feature game this week. We are going to have an Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the game we reviewed one year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then I'm going to metaphorically hit the road. But don't worry, we'll be returning to normally scheduled content next week, and indeed we will be maintaining our schedule of Patreon-exclusive content as these things continue. I have a number of extremely inside baseball anecdotes lined up for bloat, and of course the glorious return of Pledge of Indifference. With that in mind... Exactly one year ago, Mark, we got to play The Lost Ruins of Dune. In The Lost (laughs) Ruins of Dune, it's a worker placement deck-building game where you don't really get to build your deck. It's like sort of a false facade of deck building with a majority of worker placement very tight. I I would instead say Lost Ruins of Imperium, actually, because everything has to have Imperium in the title, certainly for 2020. I was more disappointed in point of fact by the worker placement. If you've only got two workers every round, I never really felt like I could get anything going. It It was a strange experience. That having been said, you know, as a proof of concept... deck building and worker placement it worked fine enough and it won let me just check the list yes every award under the sun we are of course talking about the lost runes of arnok it's still winning awards actually (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) they're they're staggering the releases so they can win all the awards forever i mean we joked about wingspan that one year winning all the golden geeks but there at least it was it was tightly compact in time lost runes of arnok is just spreading it out and I don't begrudge them. I mean, good for them. It's it's a very approachable design, and it moves smoothly enough. It's just we played it, you know, 
half a dozen times or so. And even before that, we're like, we're seeing the same thing over and over. It just felt very samey, very quick. And so pleasant enough, but no staying power, not particularly interesting. It got an expansion. I haven't tried it. I don't think Mark's tried it. And apparently it mixes up a little, giving you like asymmetrical powers and more cards, more stuff. But maybe someone will bring it to a gaming night and I'll give it a try. Yeah, sure. I'd be willing to try it. I haven't tried the expansion either, but we didn't really feel the need to go back to it. And based on my understanding of the expansion, again, our, our criticisms are a little bit more fundamental than maybe some asymmetry, maybe thickening the deck of, of the, the pool of available cards you can purchase for your deck. That, eh. That's not really where our grievances were, although grievance is uh, too much of an elaborated word. And this was a review copy given to us by CGE Games and was designed by Elwyn and Min. That was our year as the Lost Ruins of Arnak. Let us talk about the games we played last week. I got to play Foundations of Rome again. Now, unlike the gutter copy that Warmboy subjected us to. Oh, you got the shaded. Ooh, The shaded with the metal first player marker. Now, one of the things that I actually found somewhat suspect (laughs) was that you don't need the first player marker because you don't play even turns. I, there's there's literally no purpose for this marker. Another stretch goal market. That's the purpose. Another add-on, yes. And these this had the, the sun drop technology applied. So as opposed to the several hundred dollar version that we played with, you know, the trashy, hardly any component value, I get to play with the full actual experience. And I can tell you now, having had the definitive Foundations of Rome experience... It's still a fine game. Like it's okay. It's not really it's relatively simple. It's not terribly tense or interesting. It moves at a good clip. It's inoffensive. The same geographical constraints keep seeming to pop up. I, I commented just as we commented during the game. It's odd that some of the classic Tetris pieces aren't represented. There's no T's, there's no crosses, there's no squigglies, generally speaking. And even people who've played the game two or three times, sometimes they're like, oh yeah, I forgot. There's only a very small number of shapes in this game. You've got lines, you've got right angles, and you've got squares. That's it. You're done. And so there's not really a whole lot of interest there. Now, our, this game was different in the, the uh, from the other game we had of Foundations of Rome because the scores were a lot higher. And this was because after the draft, three of the four players had very dense conglomerations of adjacent properties. It was really the case that for three of the players, we kept getting handed the new draft cards and saying, sure, I'll take the one that's adjacent to the property I already have. But this is just randomness. At the end of the day... If some people end up with dense, compact levels of of adjacent property and others don't, well, you can kind of call the game already because you know how it's going to shake out. And sure enough, the player who didn't start off with a lot of adjacent property didn't do as well as the ones who did. And so again, as I say, it's an inoffensive game. It's 75 minutes. It's okay. I think that the gameplay could have been opened up if it was played with tokens instead of ridiculously overproduced plastic buildings. Other thematic quibbles. The Colosseum is bad. It's not a very good building. I'm sorry. If you're going to make a game about ancient Rome and you're going to have the Colosseum, make the Colosseum okay. It's weird. The special buildings, the monuments in general, some of them are okay. Some of them are worth playing. But they're not particularly interesting, nor particularly strong. It's one of those instances where they kind of balanced it out so that everything's kind of bland and generic. And that's the thing. If it weren't for the visual appeal of Foundations of Rome, I bet zero people would be playing it. And as a consequence, the fact that somebody was willing to break their back lugging this massive crate of plastic so that we could play it, eh, good for them. I mean, I'm glad they did that service. I wouldn't do it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't object to playing it, but again, there's not a whole lot going on there. There's not a whole lot of there there. It's uh, a consequence and a symptom of modern Kickstarters, and we can leave it at that. And so that was Foundations of Rome by Emerson Matsuuchi, published by Arcane Wonders. Mark, I got to play a game called Gollum. This is a game published by Cranio Creations, the same people that put out Barrage. It is designed by Felimina Bastini, Figagino Gili, and Silamone Luciani. In Gollum, it's got this interesting sort of marble tower, Mark. Now, I played this game once before on Tabletop Simulator, and there, a computer takes care of it. You say, put marbles in tower, and it will give you a random distribution. But this marble tower is made much like a dice tower. All they are are two levers going in different directions, and you sort of drop the marbles down this long trough. And I felt as though, you know, you dump them in the middle, they're all going to come out the middle. And in some cases, that that was the case. So I sort of just put them all in a container and dumped them all at once, and sort of them hitting against each other gave it a good spread. So I'm not sure dropping it with your fist, dropping it with your hand, I thought it was a problem. Moving on. So what you're doing is you're really... D- sort of building your board because your board is divided into sort of three sections, your golem section, your inventions, and your library. And this is where the majority of your points are going to come from because you're upgrading your board, you're getting Minara symbols times how many times you've upgraded each of these sections, and it's a big multiplier. You're also moving golems down a street, and you're trying to keep your students in at the same level as they are, else the golems go out of control, and they cost you a lot of points. All of this, all of these things I thought were fairly interesting because it's sort of action efficiency because as you drop the marbles down the, the tower, they all sort of line up with different actions. You're going to do two of these marble actions and you're going to do a rabbi action. So the power of the action is how many marbles are in that particular slot when you choose that action. So you sort of are weighing, do I do this action that, you know, I've been waiting for? And is sort of going with my strategy or do I do this really powerful action and start a new sort of section of my board that I have to work on anyway. So there's good, good, you know, decision space there. And even the color of the marbles matters as well because the color is going to move certain students or that you score end of round stuff because there's a card every round that you get to trigger if you pick the right color of marbles. So that's sort of an interesting thing as well. I really liked it. But the setup is not nothing, because like I said, there's three roads that these golems go down. They all have a dozen or more spaces, and all of these spaces need an action mm. chit, which you have to randomize. And then there are there's your board itself, which I said that like has six different things you can unlock in, in three different sections. So that's 18 counters that go on your board that are all different. The actions that the rabbi can take have to cycle, setting up the marble tower. And this is probably half of the setup of Gollum. Hmm. But overall, I think it is, it does things that are different and I enjoy that kind of thing and just sort of trying to keep the Gollums in check because they, you want to trigger them every turn because they give you resources and benefits when you activate them, but you have to try to keep your students, you know, in line and then you can retire your Gollums and they give you benefits at the bottom when you retire them as well. Sort of just keeping this balance constantly throughout the game I thought was very interesting. So I'm looking forward to showing it to you. I'm very much looking forward to trying it. I really don't know anything about it other than it's by Italian designers that I respect 
And it certainly sounds like, you know, your average medium-heavy designer Italian Euro. And I tend to enjoy those, so I am looking forward to it. That's Golem by Flaminia Bersini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani. I got to try a game called Token Terrors Battlegrounds. This was a review copy sent to us by the designer. And Token Terrors Battlegrounds actually reminds me a lot, both in terms of conceit and form factor, of a relatively obscure game called Titan's Tactics, which is one of my favorite skirmish games, which it is a no-luck skirmish game that comes in a very, very small box, but nonetheless seeks to give you the full experience of being able to select units and then engage in a square grid combat system. Because there are lots of skirmish games that we really enjoy. We talked last week about For What Remains by David Thompson. And it, too, is a boxed product. It's not a full miniatures game, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of components to be had if you want full armies and all the different army factions. But uh, Token Terrors, just like Titan's Tactics, seeks to have a whole bunch of different factions in one compact box. And the tokens in question are these adorable, tiny little miniatures. And I would really encourage people to take a look at them. They're these, they're, they're, they're routinely called tokens, but they are in point of fact miniatures. They're not quite busts. They're not quite chibis. They're these hunched over. It's a very, very particular art style. Their proportions are a little distorted, but it's very, very endearing. And at the end of the day, it adds a tremendous degree of personality. They're very detailed in a shocking way, despite how small they are and despite how chunky they are. They're very satisfying in a, in a number of ways. I really did, did like the components in that sense. The universe that it tries to to present is a slightly comic one. You know, there's aggressive alliteration. They have a Chronicles of Chaos. They have the Warlord's Wealth. You know, but we here at Swag, we are wary of wild, overworked, and overwrought wordplay. As anybody who's listened to Swag for a long time knows that we stand for two things. Number one, avoidance of alliteration and weird acronyms. And number two, not driving jokes into the ground. And so I was a little bit wary of that. But at the end of the day, it was a charming package. Now, the thing is, how does it succeed as a skirmish game? More so, despite the fact that you roll dice in Token Terrors, it feels more deterministic in a variety of ways than Titan's Tactics. The reason why is because it feels a, an awful lot like a positional abstract. But there's a world of difference, I think, in my experience, between a positional abstract trying to present itself as something else and something else going along the lines of a positional abstract. So I've talked about... Perhaps my favorite positional abstract last year, I still didn't enjoy it much because I don't really like abstracts, was That Time You Killed Me. Again, a fair amount of personality, but I felt that it didn't really work. In this context, though, I really felt that Token Terrors really kept its eye on being a skirmishy type of game, even though it feels a lot like an abstract. The reason why it feels like an abstract is you're playing on this grid, and by and large, units have one strength... And there's always counterattacks, so if you have a one-strength unit attacking a one-strength unit, they'll both kill each other. But they get bonus strength when more of their allies are adjacent to them. And so what you need to do is set them up in formation and try to make sure they're next to each other and try to make sure that you can keep them protected in that way. On top of that, you have, of course, the added elements of special abilities that you draft at the start of the game. And by and large, you'll end up with two to three different factions of these tokens. And they each have their own special abilities that break the rules. Some of them are very, very straightforward, like the Wyverns. Normally, you spend one action to move one space. The, Wyvern, the Wyverns, once per round, you can spend one action to move them three spaces. That's an obvious effect. Some of them are a little bit more subtle. And then there's a whole question of what range considerations can you use? Because there's, there's actually a quite clever way that range works with the activation system. At the end of your activation, you can either ready the unit 
in which case it can dodge, or you can have them exhaust, which gives you extra actions that you can spend for later turns. Again, for what it's worth, this is vaguely reminiscent of Titan's tactics. But if they are exhausted, they can't dodge anymore, and so any ranged unit can just waltz up and, and kill them. And so that, that leads to an interesting element of the economy, about how you need to keep your units safe in order to protect your economy, and the interplay between ranged and melee units. Interplay between ranged and melee is often something that bedevils a lot of skirmish games. And I have to say that the way that the, again, relatively abstract mechanisms of token terrors is a really satisfying spin on the balance of, of ranged versus melee and their specialisms there. I enjoyed it a great deal. I thought it was an excellent iteration on skirmish ideas. I probably would have liked it more if it didn't emphasize so much the idea of keeping things in formation. I don't know whether this was just a function of inexperience or whether it was a function of my not using special abilities enough, but it really did seem like you needed to keep things together in, in, in groups. And that made it feel a bit more like go than, say... Um, a miniatures game or another kind of skirmish approach. But again, as I say, the interplay between the economy and ranged versus melee units I thought was really clever. I really appreciated the personality injected by these adorable little pieces. And even though the board is super tiny, I really do think that it used its comp the, the components really, really well. Again, having just talked about Foundations of Rome, uh, I think that games like Token Terrors are a really good antidote because you get satisfying and pleasing to manipulate pieces that look good, but they don't take up your entire table and they're not going to break your bank and they're not going to break your back when taking it to game night. And so Token Terrors is sort of a proof of concept. I think they have plans for, you know, more factions, more abilities. Most skirmish games can be expanded ad infinitum. And they've got big dreams. I, I hope they're successful because I would like to see more of the system evolve. It was very cute, very clever. I prefer my skirmish games a little less abstract, but I have to say I liked what they did with those abstract elements. And so that was my early experience with Token Terrors Battlegrounds by John DeCampos and Philip Docolo and Terrible Games. I got to introduce Huey and Chip the Third to Switch and Signal. This is a design by David Thompson, put out by Cosmos, and it is a sort of solo co-op train puzzle game seen as chip the third is a big train and fan he really enjoyed it he saw us playing it one night and has been chirping about it since so i'm glad he dropped in to give it a try and i liked how it sort of because this is only the i think the third time i played it. i did solo once and then with other people these last two times and i can see more of a game evolving like m the first few plays it was just getting the trains not to crash into each other right and and get them in and out of the cities right so even though this was their first play they latched onto that fairly quickly because there's three of us talking about it all the time and then it got down to more of gaming it out you know making sure well that's where we ran into problems because we we started gaming it out too late and we had these slow silver trains coming from the top of the map trying to get to the bottom so in the end, we were two goods short, but though we could see where those those two goods were already lined up. We didn't even have to do anything, but we were just out of cards and couldn't run them down. They enjoyed it. They can't wait to play again. What a fantastic game! If you like any of those sort of puzzling out movement pipe games, all that, all those, all those app games that you play where you you're doing pipes or you're landing aircraft or you're just time management things, this is a game you should check out. Switch and signal. David Thompson. How was it with three? It was fine. I, I, I sort of emphasized at the beginning, you know, make sure, you know, not too much quarterbacking, let people, you know, make their own decisions. 
definitely not just, you know, be quiet and not say anything, but, you know, wait till they sort of figure out what they want to do and then just say, well, you know, did you see this or do you, do you think you should do that? And then they can either take that advice or not. Because that was my biggest misgiving with Switch and Signal. Same thing with Sniper Elite, for what it's worth, also by David Thompson. There is a fixed amount of game to be had. No matter how many players are at the table, you are going to have the same quantity of game. Adding more players just means that they will control less of the game. Yeah, there's one pie. Cut them thin. (laughs) Indeed, there is but one pie. I got to play Unsettled. Unsettled is the sophomore effort by Orange Nebula. That was the company that put out Vindication. I would now like to announce uh, my sincere apologies when somebody asked us what the worst game title we could remember. I had completely forgotten about Vindication because Vindication is possibly the worst name for a game that has no Vindication in it because Vindication means something and there is no Vindication in Vindication. Anyway, Unsettled, on the other hand, is a great title. Were you unsettled while playing it, Merc? Did it make you unsettled? It is a group of explorers who crash land on a foreign planet and you encounter unsettling phenomena. So not only is there no settlement, but it is unsettling. And so there you go. It's a great title. And it, it very much like Vindication, the components are very functional and very attractive. And the storage system, for what it's worth, it's got this integrated game trays system that actually is among the most functional I've ever seen from game trays. You are expected to store the tokens in their setup components, and you take out the tray, and you put it on the table, and you have set up that set of components. It works very, very well. Now, what Unsettled seeks to do is to really be more narrative than a lot of other co-op games would be. And I respect its attempt. I don't know how successful it was. Now, it managed to give a lot of flavor of the planet on which we crash-landed. We crash-landed on a planet called Renora. It's the recommended introductory planet. There's two planets that come with the game, other planets that are available as Kickstarter add-ons. And there was indeed a reprint campaign that uh, concluded very, very recently in crowdfunding where you can get more stuff. I don't have any experience with any of that. As I say, I just played on the first planet. And... The atmosphere of the planet was communicated very well. What the game wanted to do when Unsettled, though, was to encourage you to really interface with the unknown and sort of go native, as it were. Because uh, they're very explicit about that. Try weird things. Take risks. Uh, become a fungal host. I'm being literal here. Like try to Try to interface with the planet on a deep level as to sort of unlock its secrets. The problem is, a couple of the players took that to heart... And we're very, very invested in doing that. And I feel that the game punished us for trying to do that. Because what happened was, they ended up getting these distress cards. The game encourages you to do this, because in in, in this particular planet, you get two distress cards, and then you draw a hallucination. Hallucinations are unique to the planet, as are the distress cards. The distress cards were bad enough because they degraded group trust, which is a very, very fragile and finite resource so that was bad enough and then the one hallucination we encountered now this is our fault for only drawing one but the one hallucination we encountered obligated that player for their future moves to beeline straight back to the ship but in order to progress the victory conditions we needed that player specifically to go the other direction and so we looked at that and they said oh that may be interesting but no we can't let them have that so we immediately undid it we immediately devoted some resources to healing the distress, which got rid of the hallucination. And that basically primed us and taught us that the game taught us not to do weird things going forward because we knew that they could be something that would completely be counterindicated to what we needed to have happen. Will that work differently with different setups? 
Maybe. Will that work differently with different player configurations? Probably. And would other hallucinations be less punishing? I don't know. Again, the game taught us not to do that. So they wanted us to do that. They told us to try it. We tried it. We felt like we got punished as a consequence. That part we really did not appreciate. However, in terms of a pure gameplay element, it's a it's an interesting evolving tactical puzzle. So to contrast it, for example, with Switch and Signal, where all your tools are available right at the start, in Unsettled, what you do is you, you have a gradually evolving toolbox, and you have to use them in a satisfyingly puzzly way in order to satisfy the demands of whatever the planet is throwing at you. So for example, at the start of the game, here you are doing basic actions, which are reasonably engaging. But over the course of Unsettled, your characters gain new breakthroughs. You know, suddenly you're an engineering expert. Suddenly you're, a, you're, you're an expert botanist. And you get this breakthrough. And so now you're like, okay, everybody, I can help out the group by doing this thing every turn if we have the resources to power it. And the first time that happens, that's interesting. The second and third and fourth times that it happens, now you've got this really interesting toolbox to work with. And that I really appreciate. It gave me vaguely akin to Spirit Island vibes in terms of how the evolving power state gave us more levers to pull. And we could start going, going and doing more and more interesting things. Speaking of vibes, because I'm going to be talking about Reichbusters soon anyway, that sounds a lot sort of similar because you wouldn't think in Reichbusters you have all these aliens coming in, I'm going to move to a space and draw cards. That usually doesn't sound like something you would do. You're probably going to go, go to a space and start shooting or throwing grenades, but it's such an integrated card system and I just love, you know, because your two basic actions usually don't do too much. It's all sort of how you uh, combine those actions with your skills and your cards all at once. So you sort of jump in, draw some cards, see what your new options are and sort of integrate that with what you have left. And it just reminded me of that same sort of thing. Well, Reichbusters is an interesting counterpoint as well, because one of the other thematic elements of Unsettled that I really appreciated is they've been very explicit. Now, some future planets may undermine this to a certain extent, but, but I'd be very surprised. They're very explicit that there is no combat. There are no soldiers. You are not warriors. You are explorers. You are, you're not colonizers. You're not fighters. You're here to learn and you're here to study. And that is it. And I really appreciate that. It's a nice counterpoint. Like I, I have nothing against running around with a laser chainsaw. Like I do that all the time. It's, it's, you know, an average Tuesday, but it's nice to have a game that's very explicitly not going to do that. And instead about, you know, more classic, uh, Star Trek science fiction of going and encountering the unknown, possibly being changed by it and trying to come to some grips with it. Now, it's not like Star Trek in the sense that you don't have that level of technology and it's more unknown and you don't really master your environments, but you're more trying to find some sort of equilibrium with it and get by. Anyhow, it was sufficiently compelling that it was a table full of gamers, many of whom are suspicious of co-op games and who were deeply unsatisfied by the monkey wrench that the aforementioned hallucination threw into it, but they were all keen to try again. They'd be willing to try the same planet over again. They'd be willing to try other planets as well. Every planet has three different possible missions that you can play. And there were some people that were even willing to express willingness to do the same mission over again. And I think that that's high praise given the level of skepticism that the group normally had to that kind of thing. I had a wonderful time playing Unsettled, and I'm very curious to see what else the system can do. I think this is one of those things where if a different planet and or a different mission feels significantly different, well then, I think that that's a marvelous space that the core game of Unsettled has given for us. If it offers more of the same, where it feels more or less the same, there's a small number of things that it expects you to do, and you're just kind of changing around the edges, that's somewhat disappointing, but nonetheless still a somewhat satisfying experience. 
experience. And so I felt that Unsettled was very, very promising, but I think a lot of that promise is going to depend on, number one, how often and whether it's going to be able to satisfy that deeper thematic promise of going native, of really becoming changed by the environment and really adapting and and breathing in the new environment and, and emerging changed in a fundamental way. And how ver- how much variety you actually get, how much substantive variety you get from different planets and different missions. But as I say, initial experiences are promising. That's Unsettled by Mark Needlinger and Tom Matson and Orange Nebula Games. We went back to Arc Nova again, designed by Mathis Wiggy and published by Feudaland Spiel. And Mark, this time we got to see what we've always talked about, not getting the cards you need out of the deck and someone getting everything they needed out of ah. the deck. So it was this gigantic swing and it was painful to watch. And this is even with sort of hate drafting going on, saying, no, we can't let him get that card. So this person, okay, well, you took that card away from him. I'll take this card away from him. But it didn't matter because he was drawing everything he needed off the top <laughs> of the deck anyway. Or after we, you know, hate drafted those cards, other cards would come from the top of the deck to refill those, which were just as good as the ones we tried to take. So the score was very lopsided. And it's it's so much like Terraforming Mars because the same thing happens there. You just don't get the cards. One person gets the very keen engine working and you just sit there and watch them accumulate their goods and, and spread out and you're not doing anything. But it's still sort of interesting to work the gears that you get to work. It is a, an interesting experience to play. I'm not saying it's a terrible game. I enjoy playing it every time. But that's Arc Nova. That is Ark Nova. I get to return to the Bridges of Shangri-La. This is one of our favorite Leo Colavini designs. Leo Colavini is mostly known for vaguely stock games with hidden allegiances. Think your clans, think your familian bende. But Leo Colavini has also designed the Bridges of Shangri-La, which is almost kind of a conflict game, but not really. As well as our favorite Leo Colavini, Carolus Magnus, a.k.a. Carlos Grande, a.k.a. Charlie Big Big, a.k.a. Karuli Maguni, a.k.a. Chucky Biggs. I love how old... Bridges of Shangri-La looks when it really is not that old. It just looks like it's an old TSR game. I love it. It's true. It is about twenty. It is about twenty years old, but it does have that sort of faded gray board look, and the tokens are that sort of monochromatic look that you would find in old TSR games. You're absolutely right. It looks very, very classic. But you get to do fun things like send your Yeti Whisperer and your Dragon Breeder off on a little journey and crush your opposition. So that's nice. Get to talk smack about how they don't understand the way of the Yeti. The Bridges of Shangri-La is a game that's really all about tempo because you know that conflicts are going to happen and you start trying to math out who's going to attack which one when because the moment you launch an attack from a city, that city is now vulnerable to the predations of other cities around it. So you look at this densely interconnected map where you're kind of in co-opetition with other players because it's almost impossible to get a lock on a on a city by yourself. So you're there, you've got your rainmaker in that city with someone else's priest and you're starting to wonder about when you're going to go descend on that city and then suddenly that opponent with whom you share the city launches the attack before you wanted them to and now suddenly you're where, not where you want to be to begin with. Marvelous little shared incentives and disincentive structures. You know, that sentence that you just said or that, that you could, that's a exact representation of Tigris and Euphrates. Like it's exactly That's true. how Tigris and Euphrates plays out. It's so interesting. Love it. Sorry. Don't mean to interrupt. 
That That is actually a good point. The difference is, though, that in Tigers and Euphrates tends to have a smaller number of high-consequence fights, whereas the Bridges of Shangri-La, you, the map is so constrained. It looks like it's wide open, and at the beginning of the game, it looks like you can go wherever you want. But very quickly, you enter the mid-game, and suddenly everything is perilous and dangerous, and you're under threat from all sides. It's really a lovely design. I wish you could play it more often. It's very counterintuitive in a number of ways. People look at it and they don't really understand the 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 levers to pull. And I keep forgetting the levers to pull until about the mid-game. I'm like, oh yeah, this is how I messed everything up. And for as a consequence, it's a no-lucky game, and it's all about the timing of other people taking their actions, which makes it lo- a lovely tactical exercise, but at the same time, it can be very unforgiving as a consequence, and you can get a lot of your board position wiped out if you're not careful. Now, fortunately, it's not one of those situations like Settlers of Catan, where your initial setup can completely destroy you. It's not that bad. But if you don't spend your early turns shoring up your support in key areas, you can get alienated. Now, in this case, fortunately in this game, that didn't happen in the Bridges of Shangri-La. We were all in it until the very end. And so the timing considerations were utterly delightful. I really like Leo Colavini's non-stock stuff, to be frank. Anything where he's not uh, fiddling around with hidden allegiances. I mean, arguably there's kind of a stock element in Carolus Magnus, if you want to frame it that way. But it's... The Again, the timing considerations, the issues of when to pull the trigger on what conflicts and when you can eke out the minor advantage to get that advance over your opponents. Really interesting designer. Shame that he doesn't return to this kind of work more often in his of. He's got a big catalog, but as I say, a lot of it's basically pinned allegiance stock stuff. But I really love the Bridges of Shangri-La, and I was very, very pleased to go back to it. Speaking of getting back to it, I went back to a game called Merchants of the Dark Road, which is put out by Elf Creek Games and designed by Brian Shure. So in this game, Mark, you're like an entrepreneurial stagecoach driver, and you sort of do these laps around the city, and there's these travelers at the inn, and they want to go home, but they can't ride your stagecoach unless they buy some of your equipment. That's sort of like, you know, your sort of rule, you want to ride on the coach, you got to buy the equipment so you sell them the equipment they get on your coach and then you get these sort of uh, i think they're called queen's commissions it's just sort of like a a you know a recipe now that and you sort of want to match these recipes with the passengers you picked up all of these guys want to go to you know newenberg right so you make sure you have the recipe for newenberg and some passengers passengers for newenberg and either you start a mission to newenberg or you hope someone goes in that direction because they're sort of sectioned off in colors purple and blue and pink and red and there's two cities in each section so if someone you know goes to a city in pink you can sort of tag along with them and go to another pink city that you want to go to so it's sort of i didn't employ this strategy but i thought about in the first game i should have tried it and sort of watch what other people are sort of collecting and sort of collect either that same city or the sister city and therefore not waste an action taking that travel and just sort of latch on to them there are some advantages to being the leader of the expedition there's some upgrades you can get to your your coach if you're the leader but the rest of it is pretty well you're going to get some companions for leading and then you're going to get and then you get a dice for that and your dice and then a die for every one that latches on and you roll these dice and then you start drafting them and then they all give you different benefits so that's the only disadvantage to not leading or le- or leeching off of someone else's but in the end i really felt as though there's just too much going on in 
uh, Merchants of the Dark Road. There's all of this stuff that just doesn't seem to get used because what you're doing is you're bumping a die through an action to push up another die that's going to be the die you're going to use. And that engages one action spot. And then it has this other interesting mechanism where if you push the center die, then you get to use this fancy die. Instead of doing one action, now you're suddenly doing three actions. That seems interesting, but you never get to do that that often. Trying to get one of those orange dice back again is almost impossible. So it's like once or twice an entire game where you get to do this interesting thing. And and the third sort of sort of central town can only be used that way. The other ones you just, you know, cycle around the town over and over again, building up your coach, dumping out your coach. I I do I sort of don't want to play it again, but but want to see if there's if I'm just missing something, whether the fiddliness is just there because I'm I'm not playing it as much as I should, you know, like putting too much time between each game, you know what I mean? Forgetting the nuances of all these different mechanics that they're trying to force into this game. It could be that, or it could be the classic case of you want it to realize its potential of all these cool things that never seem to happen or that never seem to be worth all the effort. Yeah, and all the like fantastic assets of the game. The art's amazing. The magnetic wheel, very cool. Oh, magnets. The, the fact... The fact that it has, you know, this sort of Tetris puzzle thing for you to, you know, store all this different equipment. There seems to be a lot there. Seeing as no one else seemed to enjoy it either, I, mm. I just don't think it, I don't think it's me alone. But you haven't tried it yet, so I'll be more than happy to show it to you and see your thoughts on it. And that is Merchants of the Dark Road. Played Paper Tales, talked about Paper Tales a few years ago. Paper Tales is a drafting game by Masato Uesugi, put up by Stronghold in 2017. It had an expansion, did not play with the expansion, but it is still satisfying just with the base game. It is, the way I would phrase it is, Seven Wonders Done Right. We are big fans of Antoine Boza here at the podcast. We love almost all his designs. With the exception of Seven Wonders, we're not big fans of Seven Wonders for a variety of reasons. And Paper Tales really, I think, lives up to the promise of what Seven Wonders was trying to accomplish. Namely, you're in direct military competition with your two neighbors, and that really means you have to be careful about what you draft, because it is a drafting game fundamentally, very much like Seven Wonders, and you have to be very careful what you pass to your opponents. So you're constantly looking to your left and your right, figuring, okay, well, what military unit would really synergize with what they're going for, and therefore be able to beat me in a given war? On top of that, it's not just about winning the wars. There's also some buildings to be built and some rules concerning that, and they'll give you points and special abilities. But ultimately, a lot of your point income is going to be the fact that every round, you compare your military strength against both your neighbors. On top of that, the art is aggressively delightful. The deck contains a whole bunch of different units that are presented in a sort of faux paper art sort of style. That's why the game is called Paper Tales. And there are a number of interesting synergies you can, you can try to build out. You can just go for blunt military strength and play the commander who gives you four strength and do that. Or the giant walking tree that apparently is made of meat. Don't ask, it's kind of gross with three strength, but then there's also more complicated things that synergize with other things. The manticore that gets stronger, the more meat that it's fed a variety of other weird units that want to age and die because there's this aging mechanism whereby generally speaking units only last for two rounds and they have to refresh your ranks, but some units die prematurely. Some units never die. They're ways to forestall death. Anyhow, it's a relatively simple game. And I think that's part of its charm. I really think that when it comes to pure drafting games, I would rather play fairy tale or paper tales above anything else on the market. And so the fact that I would mention paper tales in the same breath as fairy tale, which is a 
favorite drafting game is high praise. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Like going back to it every now and then. And it's so simple and straightforward that I don't even need to be refreshed on the rules because it's just accessible and approachable enough that you don't have to go back and reread the rule book, even if you haven't played in a couple of years. And that is Paper Tales. Lastly, for me, Mark, I got to play an old classic, Memoir 44. We played it on Board Game Arena, and there was an app that came out, and it sort of instantly burned me out. And it, it sort of showed all of the flaws that is Memoir 44 and sort of emphasized them, and then it just have not gone back since. But this was a little more interesting because it wasn't just playing against the computers, playing against Warm Boy. So it it sort of brought back the good feelings. Memoir 44, I think, is one of the very original uh, uh, Command and Colors games. What you're doing is you're picking a command card and it's letting you activate in three different theaters of a battlefield. And then it sort of relies, like most of them do, on this dice system. And they usually mix it up as either you have to roll the symbols of what you're trying to attack or the symbols of what you're attacking with or or some combination thereof. And it really emphasizes a little, you know, it's kind of a, you crosses the, the luck, you know, are you going to get the cards you need and are you going to roll what you need? So it sort of either hits you hard both ways or or balances it out completely, <laughs> however you want to look at it. But I enjoyed it. I think I'm going to go back to it. I'm going to find someone that wants to uh, also play it and just go through, because I'm sure you can set it up on Board Game Arena that will just cycle through all of the missions. Nice and easy. It sets them all up. It's You can just mouse over the, all of the units. It tells you how many dice they're going to roll at what range and what's going to happen. And it's very intuitive. Picked it up immediately. This is designed by Richard Borg. The board game arena implementation was developed by Tissac and Vincent, and they did a fantastic job. Yeah, Memoir 44 is simultaneously my least favorite Commands and Colors game, and yet a game I would be perfectly willing to hap- uh, perfectly happy to play, especially online, which would get rid of the setup, because the setup for Commands and Colors games tends to be a little bit onerous. It doesn't have any incentive to engage in combined arms, it doesn't really have any incentive to engage in formation, and those are two elements that I very much appreciate in Commands and Colors games, but it's a delightful system. I really do think that Richard Borg hit on something very, very fundamental and enjoyable when he made the Commands color system so I'm, I'm glad to hear that the implementation is good because the off, all the offshoots were fantastic and they do implement those things that you just talked about where where depending on where certain units are they give advantages and it, that really brings that whole system to life whereas you can see this is definitely an earlier sort of you know the the premier release type thing and it did get a little bit of revival lately it got a new edition and they republished a lot of the expansions they redid the whole air expansion so People are still loving it. Memoir 44. The first one to be published was Battlecry, and that was American Civil War. But my understanding is it's roughly at the same level of complexity and detail as Memoir 44, which was the second one to be published. Although, word has it that the Napoleonics version was kind of already bubbling in the background even when they were published. But the Napoleonics version didn't get published until uh, substantially later. I mentioned this, of course, because the Napoleonics version is my favorite version, but no one was willing to play with me because it is admittedly very counterintuitive because if you don't know the difference between a guard grenadier and a guard, the dizzying charts of unit differentiation are apt to alienate you real quick. 
Finally, for me, I played Iwari. Iwari is by Michael Schacht. This is the redevelopment of the game that was first published as Web of Power, then republished as China, then republished as Han, and then republished as Iwari. And I've said it before, you pick your favorite version. No matter which one you take, you're going to get one of the best simple area majority games in the Eurosphere that has ever been designed. Uh, my favorite version is Han, but I have nothing really against Iwari. It was a overdone production with some color matching issues, and I felt that some of the art and iconography was a little misleading and problematic, and people would get a little bit confused. But honestly, those are minor quibbles, because the fundamental game system is really, really wonderful. It's a little bit difficult to teach, despite how simple it is, because there's two kinds of scoring, one of which is incredibly straightforward and intuitive, and the other one sometimes catches people by surprise, because it's a high-risk, high-reward element, where you could possibly score tremendous numbers of points or absolutely nothing and as is not uncommonly the case you can explain how these in this case it's totems sometimes in other cases it's ambassadors you can explain to them two three times and they'll start putting in resources and then at the end of the game they say and now i get my four points right you say nope nope sorry you get nothing for that because you needed to be winning on both sides. Like, but I have more than anybody else. Like, not on both sides, you don't. Anyway, maybe this is a me problem, but I've had a number of difficult times explaining what is otherwise a relatively simple system in the Web of Power lineage of games. So the Iwari version is set in a sort of generic fantasy world. That's another strike against it. I prefer these slightly more historically grounded ones. Not that they're simulationists by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it gives some context for the boards. That helps me get some some degree of grounding. But we as well played on the Board Game Arena implementation. And the Board Game Arena implementation, just to pick up on a conversation we had about hidden trackable information, does an interesting thing. It tracks and displays publicly what people know about everyone else's hands. If you pull a card from the face-up display, from the common display, then the system will continue to display that to the rest of the players until you play that card. On the other hand, if you top deck, then the system will display to the other players that they don't know what you have from having top deck. It is an interesting design choice. It's an interesting implementation choice. And for asynchronous play, it makes perfect sense because you're not going to remember day to day what somebody happened to pull from the display. And it gives you some indication of where someone's going to play. Anyway, we've, we've talked a lot about Awari and the related games. Marvelous game system. If you've never tried any of those games, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Michael Schacht, very much like Leo Colovini, is one of those Euro designers who designed a lot of heavily abstract, very simple, straightforward, engaging systems. And I cannot recommend them highly enough. This is Iwari, and this particular edition was published by Thundergriff Games in 2020. So those are the games we played this week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Mark, I think this game might have got away with me, away from me here. This is a game designed by Wild Waiten, and it's won the Spiel, the Indospiel 2021. It's called Ghost Adventure. This is a very interesting game, Mark. I think we'll love it. So, it has all of these double-layered boards, and it comes with a spinning top. And so you spin the top on the boards, and then it's like, uh, what was that game called? King's Quest, you know, where you pull the levers. But this one, you just hold the board, and you sort of let the top spin around the board, and you collect the items that are printed on the board. And then if it's still going, you can actually reach down with the other hand and grab another board and sort of flick the top onto a new board and, and start, you know, completing that one as well. It looks super interesting, and I cannot wait to play it. It is called Ghost Adventure. You first talked about it in episode 105, Walker. Did I really? Wow. Yes, in February of 2020. Well, they probably didn't have a video because I had not actually seen this game in play. Uwe Rosenberg, famed Euro designer of medium-heavy worker placement games, is going to be coming up with a new game, Atiwa. Now, this is going to be largely about bats and using bats to fertilize various fruit to various areas. This is great. I think that bats deserve more representation in board games. And I say this despite the fact that a bat assaulted me a couple years ago, forcing me to undergo rabies therapy. Uh, But uh, don't worry. It turns out that the bat was negative. Yes, it did attack me, but as a consequence, it was decapitated and tested for rabies. So don't worry. Happy story. Happy ending for me, anyway. I'd only had two or three of the necessary shots for rabies. I bear no ill will. I am, after all, the more evolved life form. However, I I will note one thing. So this is supposed to take place in Ghana, and it's very specifically historically situated, like a lot of Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games. It's a bit strange, however, that despite the fact that uh, Lookout Games has, uh, since time immemorial, had a white dude on the cover posing, they've decided finally that they have the game situated in Africa, that it's not going to be a dude posing on the front, it's going to be a bat instead. And so it's a bit strange. And some of the details about Ghana have been changed, Uh, So apparently the specific village that is mentioned in the context of the game doesn't actually have a mayor as referenced in the game. It instead has a king. I don't know if they have a cultural consultant. They haven't published a rulebook yet. I'd be curious to see if they do. I would encourage anyone in dealing with this to follow the pattern of other game companies like Osprey, like Stegmaier Games, like a lot of other publishers. Have a cultural consultant. Listen to what they tell you. It's early days yet. I'm not willing to go to the, to the ramparts quite yet, and I'm very curious about Uwe Rosenberg's work, but suffice to say that I've got my eye on it for two different reasons, and that's Uwe Rosenberg's Atiwa. So, Mark, you and I both like Nadavalier, even though it was starting to get a little samey, but to combat that, yet another expansion. This is, is going to be called Eidvol. It's going to have giants, more cards, more stuff, Nadavalier. I still have yet to find information on the single most important question. Is there going to be tier in the the deck of the Aesir? No tier, no sale. No tier, no sale. 
I'm curious, though. I, I'm genuinely curious about the design of this because one of the things that's both Nedevalier's strength and its weakness, unlike a game like Web of Power, unlike some of Colavini's stuff like Carolus Magnus, it seemed to be one of those things where its simplicity meant that it had a relatively short shelf life, right? It was, as you said, it started to get a little bit samey, and I really like the work of Serge Laget. I think he's a great designer, but in this case, I felt that he designed something really clever and really fun, but only good for a few games. Not entirely unlike Lost Ruins of Arnok. And so then the question is, can the system survive and maintain the same level of engagement with elaboration in it. Is the elaboration just going to serve to make something too simple, too complicated? Because a game can be too simple and too complicated at the same time. And I'm always worried with a game like Nadavalier, maybe something like Idaval will do that. Because the previous expansion, Thingvalier, was really relatively minor. It didn't change the fundamental structure of the game, it just had a couple of extra special cards. Idaval is going to change the number of rounds in the game, it's going to introduce a staged introduction of different cards from different decks. Uh, so, I, on the one hand, it could give it the shot in the arm to really elevate the formula, to make it, to give it the staying power that we wish Nedavalier had. On the other hand, it might ruin the simplicity that Nedavalier had in the first case. So, I, suffice to say, I'm very curious as a consequence. Mark, have you ever said, man, I, I really like Terra Mystica, but I, I wish it was more basic? Well, I yes, actually, kind of. <laughs> it's called Terra Nova. So, they're putting out a, a sort of side game of Terra Mystica. No more tracks, Mark. I know. No more tracks on tracks. Less I tracks. Know. No tracks. The cult tracks are just so weird and so unsatisfying. And it's just one of the instances of Terra Mystica feeling like much ado about nothing. I feel that this, that there's the possibility. Again, I'm super excited about this possibility. I don't know for a fact that it's going to work, but if it does, it could be great. It could make Terra Mystica feel more like a tile lane game. Because I love me some tile lane games, and if you're going to be able to focus on the map, and this is what we're doing, we're competing over scarce resources on a map, that might be the way to make this system really sing for me. And Mark, you didn't like Ares Project, you didn't like Terraforming Mars, well now we have Terraforming Mars the Dice Game. I'm oh, sure boy. you'll latch on to this one. It's going to be great. Uh, well, sorry, you misspoke. Ares Project is the real-time strategy game by the Engelsteins. That I really like. Ares Project is super weird, but I thoroughly enjoy it. You're thinking of Ares Expedition. Terraforming sorry, Mars sorry. colon Ares Expedition. That's the one I that apologize. I really don't like. Yes. Oh, I'm sure the dice game will do it. That's 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 going to be the final layer of shine, and I'm going to really... It'll be, it'll, it'll be the hook that gets you. I know it. Yeah, it's going to make me completely reevaluate my opinion on all the other Terraforming Mars games. I'm going to be a hardcore Terraforming Mars fan now. Well... Sadly, that is all the time we have for today. We have nonetheless given you nearly a solid hour of nonsense. That is, after all, what we aspire to do each and every week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact. You can find all our information there. We will read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. You can find us on Patreon, Twitch, our home website, our Board Game Geek Guild, you name it. So thanks again very, very much for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. 
by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.